Um, as Tony has sort of um, set me up very, very nicely, I'm going to talk a little bit about a moment um, at the end of the 19th century when, again, um, the issues of food prices, free trade, and land reform were propelled onto the political agenda by Joseph Chamberlain's campaign to introduce tariff reform um, in order to protect against unfair foreign imports and to advocate the imperial preference with the British Empire forming a trading bloc to compete against Germany and the US. Um, to some extent, those who were resisting the revival of protectionism drew upon the familiar arguments of the anti-corn law leaguers of the 1840s, but the debate was given an added dimension, coinciding as it did with the re revival of women's suffrage activism, and it's uh, this moment that I want to focus on. Food then was now very firmly seen as a feminist issue. Um, if I can just show you some of the um, propaganda from both sides of the tariff reform um, campaign, you will see that feminized imagery is, is very common. Um, and the tariff reformers themselves wanted to work very hard against propaganda produced by the Liberal Party, claiming that um, tariff reform would rise, raise prices um, and uh, again, once more, um, remove f uh, cheap bread from British householders. Um, indeed, a lot, of the campaign, <coughs> a lot of the campaign focused exactly on the question that you raised, which is what happened to the standard of living after um, the repeal of the Corn Laws. And I'm not going to rehearse that debate. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know that partly because I'm not an economic historian, but a political historian. Um, however, I think it's fair to say that it's a very... It, both sides could argue that um, re repeal... Um, uh, did not have the impact on food prices that one might suspect. Um, the housewife, the mother, and the household budgeter was always at the center of the debate. Um, and uh, again, in common with the Brexit um, uh, propaganda, there was um, an overtly uh, anti-foreigner, anti-German, and anti-immigrant tone um, to much of... Uh, the imagery. So here is um, a pro-liberal um, poster <coughs> uh, contrasting uh, German, the German shopkeepers or German bread with British bread. Um, this one, oh, sorry. This one is uh, from the tariff reformers, and um, you can see here that we have the so-called uh, continental free trade shop, which is selling all sorts of imported goods, um, with an unemployed uh, British family standing outside, um, and the wife saying, hey, John, but ain't they cheap? And he said, don't matter how cheap they are, my wench, if you ain't got the money to buy them. Um, you can see that the wealthy German owner of the shop um, is consorting with his Jewish neighbor um, and a member of, uh, he's a member of the Cobden Club, so you can, again, see the Cobden Club identified in the corner. In the distance, there's a hunger march being carried out by unemployed British labourers. Um, 
So it's this connection between food and uh, feminism, really, that I want to focus on. Um, food reform movements had emerged earlier in the century, and they'd already been adopted by women's rights campaigners who were keen to accompany political change um, with what they called um, a democratization of the care and feeding of the body. So food and health reform were associated by feminists as essential components of female public identities um, and led in the 1830s and 40s to the politicization of the household as a site for activism. Such food reform encompassed a diverse group of campaigners, vegetarians, vegans, fructarians, um, as well um, as towards the end of this century, people like school meals activists. Um, and there were strong links between these reform movements um, and the wider uh, female political reform organizations. Um, a lot of the personnel of these movements overlapped. And um, there was an interweaving of issues of women's um, health rights um, and feminism in this period. Food reform then enabled women to highlight fundamental issues about their exclusion from the public sphere, their subjugation, and their lack of a voice on civic matters. The political and medical establishment's control over what women and their families ate was a symptom of all that was wrong with the state. In making these connections then, feminists were drawing upon a rich discourse which had linked corruption and decay um, in the political establishment with unhealthy um, and unbalanced diets. Purity in the body politic depended upon democracy and simplicity, and similar characteristics could be applied to the health of the physical body. The leading suffrage campaigner, Millicent Garrett Fawcett, um, when commenting on the tactics of the militant suffragettes, which she condemned, put the responsibility firmly on the shoulders of the politicians. Statesmen, she said, are the physicians of the body politic. When things go wrong, when, for instance, women, who are by nature gentle and refined, take to conduct which is condemned, these disorders are symptoms of a social disease to, cure the, to the cure of which statesmen should apply themselves. Obviously, the most uh, clear connection between um, women's rights and suffragism and the embodiment of resistance is in the militant suffragists' um, campaign of hunger strikes. Their refusal of food was a weapon against an oppressive and unreasonable state. And the response by the authorities to institute forced feeding um, is, uh, was seen by suffragettes as viola violations of women's bodies. But this is just one dimension of the debate, um, with food and women's nurturing role exploited heavily in suffrage propaganda. And again, if I can just show you a few of uh, the images, um, here you get a direct connection between um, the free trade and tariff reform movement um, with a poor overworked father having to cope with his children who have got a series of issues, um, including unemployment, poor law reform, um, infant death mortality, and so on. And the cry is, why won't they let the women help? Um, something that's, sorry, I keep using, <laughs> echoed um, here in another suffrage, piece of suffrage propaganda. Um, 
again, this poor, poor husband, John Bull, is being uh, deafened by uh, the, the weight of issues that he has to deal with, most of which, as you can see, are to do with um, so-called women's issues. And his wife is saying, why won't you let me help you, John? Another direct um, connection, this is a mother with her six greedy boys um, representing different aspects of uh, political organizations and saying um, she, she's holding a bowl um, marked women's suffrage and saying, I need to feed myself before I give you any more food. Um, and finally, this is um, a, a slide by the, <coughs> a picture rather produced by the suffrage atelier. Um, these were uh, linked with the arts and crafts movement and um, uh, part of their aim was to increase employment opportunities for women um, and uh, the cry uh, waiting for a living wage demonstrates women's impotency um, in the employment market um, which led many to starvation. However, um, as again as Tony sorry, has intimated, I want to really focus on um, uh, the legacy of Richard Cobden's work most directly, and that's with the work um, and activism of two of his daughters, um, Jane Cobden, who you can see on the left, um, and Annie, um, who you can see on the right. Um, many of the public discussions about land reform, food prices, and feminism then harked back to the decade of the 40s and placed women at the center of the story. And the most prominent camp campaigners utilizing this strategy were the daughters of Richard Cobden himself, um, providing the most direct link to free trade arguments made half a century earlier. The Cobden sisters then firmly believed they were continuing the work of their father and safeguarding his legacy. In his last public speech in 1864, he had called for a league for free trade in land, just as we had um, a league for free trade in corn. Uh, and Jane Cobden unwins two, um, two published books, um, and this is where The Hungry Forties comes in, one entitled The Hungry Forties, Life Under the Bread Tax. Um, which was published in 1903, and the second, The Land Hunger, Life Under Monopoly, clearly demonstrated <coughs> the influence of her father. The Land Hunger was dedicated to the memory of Richard Cobden, who loved his native land. These pages are dedicated by his daughter in the hope that his desire, free trade in land, may be filled. Both books then contain quotes from Cobden's speeches on land reform and civic rights. Um, this is um, the frontispiece of the Hungry Forties um, with um, an image called um, the Fairy Wheat Sheaf. And you can see um, that uh, what it says underneath basically is that um, free trade and protection contrasted. Um, and it has a list of the leading free traders and a list of the protectionists, all of whom are sort of images are wo woven into the picture. On the left, then, you have um, uh, a family um, 
a destitute family that has been impoverished by tariffs, and to the right, a prosperous family um, which has been enriched by free trade. Um, as Frank Trentman has pointed out, the book, which contained a series of um, uh, oral histories, statistics, and anecdotal evidence um, to demonstrate the importance of free trade, um, does not necessarily give an accurate impression of life in the 40s. Many of those who were contributing um, were talking about decades post-1846 um, by their very ages, or, or were young children during the time of the repeal of the Corn Laws. Um, however, it was an incredibly popular book, selling hundreds of thousands of copies, and because Jane Cobden was married to the publisher Thomas Fisher Unwin, um, it, was, uh, it was able for them to produce it very cheaply. Some uh, editions in the, for the 1910 election, for example, sold for only a penny. Um, the book then um, collected these stories and oral histories via a newspaper campaign asking members of the public to send in their memories of life during the decades before the repeal of the Corn Laws. Jane termed the letters veritable human documents, the short and simple annals of the poor, and stated that they speak for themselves and bear the indelible proof of their sincerity. But what both books do is place women really at the center of um, the struggle um, for survival because of the cost of food. So in the hungry 40s, the letters give instances of women going out to undertake hard manual labor um, in the fields uh, days after giving birth, of women being brutally beaten by estate bailiffs, of a Dorset laborer and his wife crying like babies as their child eats their only crust softened in hot water. Um, and the wife of a Hampshire handloom weaver distraught because she could provide no more than a penny bloater for her husband's dinner, while her, whilst her children's tea was potatoes and salt. Um, and the mother standing outside her door and feeding with stew and bread a body of Lancashire men rioting against food prices. Jane concluded that with bread at a shilling for a quarter loaf, women faced the impossible task of feeding a family on a wage of six to eight shillings a week. Underfeeding was thus to some extent inevitable. She said she had to manage her house, make a balance somehow, and work outside for dear life as well. It's no wonder then that the women play a prominent part in our letters. Their mental and bodily suffering must have been truly awful. The Land Hunger, um, published in 1913, followed a similar pattern, calling for correspondents to write about experience of land renting and land buying, especially in connection with small holdings and allotments, um, rack renting, land going out of cultivation, arbitrary ejections without compensation, um, or uh, people receiving inadequate compensation for their land. Jane's introduction proclaimed, land is in the grip of the privilege and of the few. No one has arisen to grasp the free, the free land banner, and with it storm the citadels which guard and overshadow our country villages and towns, and destroy the healthy life of rural England. As with the testimonies in the hungry 40s, it was women who suffered the most. 
George Edwards of the Agricultural Laborers Union was asked how East Anglian laboring families survived on their meager wages. He replied, in nine cases out of 10, the women starve. The first thing she thinks about is her children and her husband. And as a result of this chronic underfeeding, we have a large percentage of insanity amongst the women. A more uplifting account was given by Sarah Barber of the plain in Wandsworth, who demonstrated how she was able to live on half an acre. She said, I've lived in Wandsworth for many years and as a young woman worked on the land and for about 30 years occupied a house and half an acre of land from which a good living was made by the cultivation of tomatoes and mushrooms coupled with the breeding and rearing of poultry and goats. I found goat keeping the most remunerative uh, occupation, finding a ready market for the goatlings and their milk. However, even her story had an unhappy ending. Um, she went on to say, the reason I'm not still occupying this land is that in 1903, I was reluctantly compelled to make room for the London County Council improvements. Uh, while men and women are landless, they are slaves. Um, a concluding essay by the journalist and the secretary to the Cobden Club, Frederick Shaw, writing under his pseudonym Broom Villiers, made a direct comparison between the political impotency of women and of rural laborers. Um, county councils, who are the baddies in all of this, um, rather than the replace the aristocracy, I think, are mostly filled by landowners and large farmers. Representatives of, the, uh, representatives of the laborers have neither time nor money for the work. The rural laborer in the affairs of the county council is confronted with a dilemma, something like that in the way of women's suffrage. Women require votes in order to influence Parliament, but they cannot effectually compel Parliament to give them the vote because they have no votes. Um, but perhaps it was Jane's sister whose life and work most comprehensively summarizes the connections between food, feminism, and politics. Um, Annie Cobden Sanderson, um, here just about to be arrested in 1909, um, was more radical than her sisters. Um, Jane stayed uh, loyal to the radical wing of the Liberal Party, whereas Annie joined the ILP, um, the Independent Labour Party. Um, she started off in the uh, more moderate National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, um, and later moved to the Women's Social and Political Union, and then on with her friend Charlotte Despard to the Women's Freedom League. She'd been a vegetarian since the age of 20, and an interest in food reform underpinned much of her activism. And it's these connections, I think, between food, food prices, land reform, and feminism um, that are brought out most strongly um, by the case of the Cobden sisters. Annie supported Jane in trying to revive public interest in their father's commitment to land reform, but she went further um, than merely outlining the problems and issued a manifesto with the objective of freeing land from feudal ownership and redistributing it to the wider population. She viewed the limited ownership of land, um, the majority of the country owned only by 2,500 people, as one factor that caused poverty and poor nutritional standards in the masses. In 1909, she wrote a pamphlet published by the ILP with a foreword by Keir Hardy entitled Richard Cobden <coughs> and the Land of the People. 
With close reference to Cobden's own speeches and letters, she outlined the connections between free trade and land redistribution. Recognizing that uh, Cobden had put his uh, sorry, faith in reform for the middling classes, she sought to extend his vision by harnessing the power of the working classes to the cause of land reform. She linked this with a call for political freedom, which would give men and women the right to vote. Um, remember, at this stage, only six out of 10 men have the vote, um, as well as no women. Um, so uh, we're nowhere near universal suffrage um, in the Edwardian period. Um, thus, she argued, opening up to them the intellectual outlook which must be the foundation of a civilized state. In June 1909, she hosted a public meeting at Midhurst in Sussex, the Cobden family home, with the objective of, of inaugurating a movement for the public ownership of land. Keir Hardy addressed the crowd contending that if the land of the country was divided into small holdings of five or 25 acres, enough foodstuffs could be produced to make the country independent of foreigners. Cobden Sanderson thus harnessed her um, father's legacy to the socialist cause. She elaborated her views in a newspaper article, um, an interview given in 1904, asserting that her father, had he lived, would have gone further than merely freeing the food of the people. He would have freed the land. Um, as I said, uh, she was imprisoned um, a number of times um, for her suffra suffrage actions. Um, and in 1906, caused a huge uh, cause célèbre um, in Parliament and in the country uh, when she was arrested. George Bernard Shaw, for example, um, uh, writing a trenchant letter to the Times, speaking of the ignominy for the establishment of arresting and locking up the charming and interesting Annie Cobden Sanderson. Um, for Cobden Sanderson, though, imprisonment, um, although she was imprisoned before the suffragettes began their campaign of hunger strikes, uh, did result in privation because of her vegetarian diet. In an open letter to the press, her husband detailed her treatment, including 23 hours of solitary confinement a day, and meals of dry bread, tea or cocoa, and potatoes. Millicent Garrett Fawcett, who remained friendly with Cobden Sanderson, visited her in prison and was appalled to see her dinner consisted of three potatoes. The prison authorities being ill-equipped to deal with a vegetarian prisoner. Cobden Sanderson then used her experiences to raise um, awareness about the poor conditions once she was free. Her cell was infested by cockroaches, so she complained to the prison governor, but refused the offer of a move, recognizing that whoever later occupied her cell would face the same conditions. And on her release, um, she wrote a number of letters um, about conditions in the prison, including the freezing temperatures on the hospital wards. Her motivation was to improve the treatment of women prisoners, but also to draw attention to the fact that they were incarcerated as a result of legislation enacted by an entirely male government and judiciary. She says, in the name of all women who are in prison and in prison for disobeying laws which they have no voice in making and no power to alter, I protest against the present inhuman system of our prisons, of which this is only one example. 
Her solution, again, she's, a, she's someone who offers solutions rather than just raise awareness. Her solution was not to um, introduce women prison officers who she said would only follow the orders of men, um, but engage a female commissioner who had the power to effect improvements um, across the prison system. Um, she was also engaged in other aspects um, regarding uh, food and food supply. Um, with her fellow vegetarians, Charlotte Despard, um, Sarah, uh, Beatrice Webb, and Seabone Roundtree, she set up the new ref food reform movement to point out the dangers of our present system of food supply, harking back to um, issues of food security. Eugenics and social Darwinism formed a key theme of the movement. Um, one supporter argued that vegetarianism was a natural consequence of the evolution of the human race, which was moving away from barbarous practices such as the slaughter and consumption of animals. Um, she also campaigned um, for better uh, uh, food for uh, school dinners, for um, crusading against the traditionally heavy rich meat diet of the period, arguing it was wasteful and harmful to health and also bad for the digestion. She called for the, what she termed the scientific feeding of school children um, in, a organized, um, in a response to the introduction of school meals by the National Food Reform Association. She reiterated her view of the danger of the food provided for children by local authorities saying that children in elementary schools had long been underfed, but now there was a danger of the, them being overfed in schools by being given food that was too heavy for them. And she wrote a another ILP pamphlet with Margaret Macmillan entitled London's Children, How to Feed Them and How Not to Feed Them, advertised by the ILP as a pamphlet in which Mrs. Cobden Sanderson deals in a trenchant manner with the incompetent way in which the Child Feeding Act was administered by the London County Council. Um, so I think that uh, free trade, food prices, land reform, and the legacy of the hungry 40s were deliberately invoked by feminist women's suffrage campaigners like the Cobden sisters at the beginning of the 20th century to demonstrate that the male state was no longer fit for purpose. However, the issues um, which were important in the 40s had been repurposed and repackaged for a new age. Um, and um, to some extent, uh, women and to some extent the working class were now placed at the center of the debate. The key foci of free trade in food and mass ownership of land remained, but activists argued that the absence of women's voices and their lack of agency had damaged the health of the nation. Starving children, poorly nourished soldiers, ill-fed prisoners, and mothers sacrificing their own needs for their families were weakening, weakening not just the state, but the British race. And this is in the context of um, the rise of militarism in, before the First World War. The food question then enabled women to highlight key issues about their participation in the public sphere and their lack of voice on civic matters. This continued after the war um, and once a vote was won, with women such as Marion Phillips serving on the Consumers Council of the Ministry of Food. Um, and in this book, um, uh, Designing Working Class Homes with the Views of Women at the Centre, um, 
these kitchen, the, the, the inter-oven, they call it, replacing the um, heavy and um, difficult to clean range, um, and a cabinet, um, a sort of a closed and open version of the cabinet, making um, the kitchen more uh, uh, effective and less um, heavy labor for women. So um, I think that food production, preparation, and pricing thus made, remained at the center of women's rights campaigns into the interwar period and beyond as a key feminist issue. <laughs> 